welcome to our podcast, Funding Indigenous Resistance. I'm Abinia Narayanan. I'm Neka Omuzurike. I'm Oscar Chavarria. And we're Masters in Public Policy students at the Harvard Kennedy School, taking a course entitled Philanthropy and Social Movements. Will the Revolution Be Funded? Taught by Dr. Megan Ming Francis. The course examines what happens when the interests of funders and grantees clash. We've studied many movements, including the Black Power, Civil Rights, Farm Worker, Prison Abolition, and Me Too movements. For our final project, we chose to learn about the indigenous environmental and land rights movement in the United States. Until the resistance of the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock, the three of us were not consciously engaged with present-day indigenous resistance. With more than 300 Native American tribes coming together in the largest modern gathering of indigenous nations, Standing Rock captured the attention of the nation and the world. As water protectors resisted the extraction of oil and the pollution of sacred water and land, many of us were confronted with the violent founding of this country that began with Native genocide and land theft and continues with broken treaties and repressive violence. Supporting Indigenous movements is central to addressing all other long-standing injustices brought on by the United States and other white settler colonialist nations. Through this podcast, we center Indigenous resistance in our education, and we challenge philanthropy to center Indigenous resistance in their funding. When we started planning this podcast, we had a few questions in mind. What was the experience of organizers on the ground at Standing Rock, and what foundations helped fund their resistance? More broadly, how do Indigenous organizers and movements navigate the world of philanthropy? What are useful strategies for funders to confront their privilege in grant-making? How do organizers and funders reckon with the tensions in seeking money and resources from a system built on stolen land and stolen wealth? This podcast seeks to answer those questions. It is for major foundations and individual donors. It is for organizers and allies who want to support Indigenous communities. Ultimately, it is for all of us, all of us living on Native land and complicit in Native erasure. Justice for all of us begins with justice for Indigenous peoples. To help us explore these questions, we interviewed three people, two funders and one organizer. You'll hear their insights throughout this podcast. Our apologies in advance for any crackles or email alerts you'll hear, but we were grateful to speak to leaders from across the country in their homes in both the city and in the woods in the midst of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Edgar Villanueva is the author of Decolonizing Wealth, a book that offers hopeful and compelling alternatives to the dynamics of colonization in the philanthropic sector. He's a member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina and currently serves as the Chair of Board of Directors for Native Americans in Philanthropy, as well as Vice President of Programs and Advocacy at the Schott Foundation for Public Education. Jason Franklin is a donor organizer, grant maker, and thought leader in the areas of collective giving and social justice philanthropy. He's also one of the eight co-founders of Solidaire, a network of donors that moves money to social justice movements. He served on numerous boards, including that of Proteus Fund, North Star Fund, and Resource Generation. Tara Hauska is an Indigenous activist and tribal attorney. She's a Kuchiching First Nation citizen. Formerly, she was the campaign's director at Honor the Earth. She's the founder of the GNU Collective, an Indigenous women-led frontline resistance to protect Earth Mother, defend the sacred, and live in balance. These days, her work is focused on protecting Anishinaabe territory from the destruction of Enbridge's Line 3 Tar Sands project. Part 1. 
the water protectors at Standing Rock. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe initiated the camps in April 2016. Soon after, a number of entities emerged as co-leaders, including the Red Warrior Camp, the Sacred Stone Camp, Indigenous Environmental Network, Honor the Earth, the International Indigenous Youth Council, and the Water Protector Legal Collective. Together, along with countless others, they organized a robust and multi-pronged resistance effort. They organized several nonviolent peaceful marches and protests, from demonstrations to impede pipeline construction, to a youth-led prayer run, to a spiritual horse ride against the current of the oil. Organizers also helped manage the infrastructure of the camps, receiving and distributing various donations, from boots, coats, and hats, to wood, wild rice, buffalo, and elk. Outside the camps, there were also a number of external tactics. Organizers filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, developed policy initiatives to protect Native land, and designed and executed a divestment campaign, asking supporters to withdraw their money from the banks funding the pipeline. When we spoke with Tara, she talked about the ways many organizers are still dealing with post-traumatic stress as a result of hearing and seeing people being brutalized, from elders to young children attacked by dogs and pepper spray. These were the people trying to stop the destruction of sacred territory, she says, people trying to protect water in the most direct way one can, by putting their own bodies and their own freedom on the line. Unity and collectivism was a critical tool of resistance, especially under the threat of surveillance. As was reported by The Intercept, there were informants and multiple attempts to infiltrate the group, violating their privacy and constitutional rights. Tara also spoke to the psychological tactics they faced. Snipers posted, helicopters circling, and cannons rolling by. Learning about security culture was incredibly important. Um, and the thoughtfulness and, and carefulness that went into um, making sure that we all understood each other's relationships with each other. You know, like that we, would, we might not agree, but that we are still collectively Indigenous people who are trying to achieve protection of our people. Part two, philanthropy and their lack of proximity. During this groundswell of Native and Indigenous organizing, you may wonder what was happening in the halls of major foundations. According to Jason Franklin, Standing Rock may have changed their conversations, but it didn't change their practices. No offense to the many wonderful people in philanthropy, but I would say that before before the Access Pipeline and the kind of rallying cry around Standing Rock, many in philanthropy were aware of Native organizing and very few were funding it. Um, and still, even afterwards, very few are funding it. It's gone up um, by magnitude, but that magnitude is still a tiny drop in the overall budget. According to Native Americans in philanthropy, only 0.4% of total annual funding from foundations goes to Native and Indigenous communities. The Alaska Native and American Indian populations represent 2% of the total U.S. population. So if foundations wanted to match Native representation, they would need to grant five times as much as they do now. But in this podcast, we hope to make the case that foundations go way beyond that. Foundations should give in a reparative way, in a way that reckons with their history and that of this country, and in a way that doesn't just support social services, but supports radical movements to protect Native land and fight for Indigenous liberation. So what's stopping them? To be quite honest, I think funders are not only stuck in 
these trajectories of top-down funding um, and largely funding almost entirely white-led organizations, which is an existing issue. But I also feel like there is a real hesitancy around funding anything that involves direct action, around funding the actual community work and direct support work that a lot of us do. And not only that, but foundations focus on what's new and flashy rather than those who are doing the real work and have been for a long time. Here, Tara speaks about her recent experience organizing around Earth Day. There was so much dedication and time to celebrities, to like, you know, these kind of like famous climate people and, you know, uh, having really flashy, well-produced content. And then, like, for me, I had to fight for, like, 10 minutes of space for the actual frontline people who are standing in front of bulldozers or standing in front of trucks that are bringing in temporary temporary uh, housing pieces for thousands of people to come into the communities. Like, that's so imbalanced, you know, or, like, I had to kind of go back and forth about, like, for our direct action, you know, like, can we get a minute of time? And it was like, well, this is kind of, you know, you're not really following the schedule and there's like, you're late. So I'm like, are you, I'm sorry that we can't suffer on the schedule. You know, like, I'm sorry that we're not meeting the requirements of your very produced and very comfortable world, you know, cause our world is not that. And the same thing happens in funding. She says, there's a disconnect between the funders and the organizers. Program officers are well-intentioned, but their lack of proximity to the problems often make them ill-equipped to decide who should get money. Generally, unless they are directly connected to you in some way, shape, or form, they don't know. You know what I mean? And so, like, I feel like they are oftentimes put into this space of, well, I'm going to give it to Sierra Club because I know Sierra Club has been around for, you know, 70 years or whatever, and I know that they give out grants to other groups and that just seems like the easiest thing to do. And I know it'll it'll get spent on climate work. You know what I mean? I, I think there is a very, very strong need in the philanthropy space for program officers, for program officers that actually are tied to community that are able to, to figure out like who is actually doing the work. And then even for those program officers that are existing within those structures to try to do more to figure out, you know, how do we bring in people that maybe are maybe they're moving into philanthropy from those spaces? So the best way to ensure that grant money actually gets into the hands of the people doing the work is to have the people doing the work governing the grant funds themselves. Part three, the burden of educating funders. Another way this disconnect manifests is when organizers face the added labor of having to educate funders and dispel racist myths that dehumanize and other native communities. Tara and Edgar each gave examples of ignorance and misconceptions that they have encountered when interfacing with traditional philanthropy and foundations. It is shocking to me that I can walk into Washington, D.C. and be a tribal attorney and have people, U.S. citizens that are intelligent people living in D.C. as staffers or whoever, say things like, I thought you guys didn't exist. I thought you guys were extinct. Do you still live in a teepee? Do you, you know what I mean? Like these, like, re, or do you, do you ride a horse? You know what I mean? Or whatever. And I'm like, you know, yeah, my teepee has Wi-Fi, you know, and like a second floor or like, what are you, what? Like, what are you saying? You know, like, 
And yeah, maybe sometimes I do live in a TV. Like me personally, like, yeah, okay, maybe sometimes I do. But I also live in the same 21st century that you all do. And no, we didn't go extinct. And no, we're not mascots. And no, we're not, you know, these, we're not sitting on the side of butter anymore. Thank God. Like that just changed. Thank God. You know, but at the same time, like there's such a like woeful lack of education and representation when it comes to Native people. I think that that type of educational change and reform is would help so many different aspects of, of Native community and existence and respect for trees and also like the actual uplifting and the follow through. Right. Like his treaty rights historically are violated just because they're not funded. There's definitely a need for a large cultural shift within philanthropy to have more Native folks in positions of power and decision-making, not only to increase representation, but also to inform the conversations that need to be had and how funders can support Indigenous communities. One of the organizations that has been taking on the role of liaison between funders and Indigenous communities has been Native Americans in Philanthropy. Native Americans of Philanthropy um, is an a organization that is a network of funders, donors, foundations who care about Native American issues. So we sort of do a, a couple of things. We um, educate philanthropy. Um, we do a lot of what we call Indian 101. <laughs> 101. Um, and um, we also help to mobilize and 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 make connections between philanthropy and community. So specific to Standing Rock, um, I know a lot of uh, funders came to NAP as a trusted partner. We're kind of the ordained uh, affinity group within the sector um, to get information around what was happening on the ground, how could foundations be helpful. So a lot of it is is educating we often say in Native circles when we're engaging philanthropy in our work, um, a lot of folks get to show up and just kind of talk about the innovative project. We have to show up and talk about being Indian <laughs> and, and, and do a history lesson. And then there's five minutes at the end of our uh, our pitch to, like, talk about the work. Um, and that is the, the labor and the, the work that a lot of the work that NAP does is really just educating folks. There's so many um, myths that people have about Indigenous people and, and Native folks that we have to constantly push back on. Um, I've heard everything from, you know, why is this Native community asking for a grant? Don't they have a casino there? Aren't they all rich? Aren't they getting checks? Um, even this past week where we were pitching for some media coverage of uh, what's happening down in the Navajo tribe right now with the COVID pandemic, um, a producer of a very popular morning TV show said, why should we cover that? Native Americans don't have to pay taxes. So why are they asking for anything? So very smart people um, have uh, all types of uh, false beliefs and ideas around Indian country. All of us need to unlearn the myths and misconceptions that allow us to justify our collective abandonment of indigenous people. Funders must evaluate their own gaps in knowledge and educate their peers so frontline communities can focus on building their vision for a just future. Part 4. Fund at the Speed of Trust We should be doing a much, much better job of not only trying to create more diversity within philanthropy, but also making sure that people actually have the experience, right? Like not, 
volunteering for 350 for a few months, but like really doing substantive community work like that is hard work. It takes years to develop those relationships, right? And that trust, like that, that trust and that respect. Trust was something that came up a lot in our conversations. That should come at no surprise. A big critique of big philanthropy is that it is a symptom of a deeper problem, mass concentration of wealth, Resource generation, a network of young people committed to the equitable distribution of wealth at land and power, has a poster that reads, All wealth is built on stolen land, stolen labor, and stolen lives. Wealth in this country is a byproduct of a colonialist and capitalist system, systems that have committed genocide on and theft from indigenous communities. So how, then, can organizers trust this money? Well, Edgar Villanueva is hopeful. He believes that money is a neutral tool. Just as it can be used for bad, it can be used for good. Water is life. Water is a life-giving force. But water uh, can also be used as a weapon, as it was at Standing Rock when protesters were sprayed down with water hoses. Um, for when I think about money, it's not really necessarily about the money. That money in itself is just, you know, a series of zeros and ones, or, or it's paper, or it's it's a tool that we actually created for our complex societies to facilitate exchange. And so whether, you know, so that actual thing itself is not the driving force of evil in itself. It is how we as human beings have valued money and esteemed and loved money more than we have humanity or the planet. And so it's really us that's the problem and not money. And it's how we decide to use money that is the driving force. So we can use money, uh, to harm communities by hoarding, by loving money more than people, or we can think about money as a um, a resource that can help um, restore a balance and bring uh, liberation to communities if it's used with that lens of healing. Only 20% of large foundations give to indigenous causes, and most of them hesitate to fund grassroots community organizing involving direct action. Fortunately, there are a few funders that do fund that kind of work. Here, Jason describes what's often called social justice philanthropy, a type of philanthropy that supports organizations addressing the root causes of various social, racial, economic, and environmental injustices. The core of social justice philanthropy, which has been the heart of the work that I do, is around how do you move money to support power building by the communities that are most, de most uh, marginalized and those who lack power in our current system. You know, social justice philanthropy actually acknowledges the damaging effects of modern-day capitalism and the marginalization of modern-day political structures um, in the U.S. and elsewhere, and says, how can we harness the resources of philanthropy to support working towards a more just and fair system? Um, at times, very frustrating, and definitely brings up those questions of, can you use the master's tools um, and those critiques of philanthropy. And I think you have to grapple with them. Social justice philanthropy at its best is also grappling with its very own construct. Success for social justice philanthropy at a very extreme level would mean that it didn't exist anymore, uh, at least not at the scale that it does. During the No Dapple movement, there were a number of social justice foundations that gave to the movement, including Novo Foundation, Open Society Foundation, Calliopia Foundation, and Solidaire, the donor network Jason co-founded. According to their 2016 annual report, Solidaire gave around $50,000 in rapid response funding to indigenous organizing. 
Solidaire was founded to fill the gaps of traditional philanthropy, and they gave in three ways. First, rapid response funding. The idea with our rapid response funding is one of the gaps we saw in philanthropy when we got going was that money moves too slowly for the pace of social change. That protests and threats and opportunities emerge faster than a grant can move through a traditional foundation. We said, how can we move money faster? Second, pooled member dues to support experimentation and innovation. So from the outset, another thing we saw was the lack of funding for new ideas and new development for new research that most most of philanthropy wanted to see projects that were already created or new ideas that only got funded from big organizations. And we held the belief that actually frontline organizing groups, many very small, were coming up with new and innovative projects, were testing out new approaches, were designing new strategies, building new coalitions. And sometimes they just needed five, ten, twenty thousand dollars to get those projects and ideas off the ground. And so Solidaire has from the outset had an R and D fund that actually two thirds of our uh, membership dues are pooled and go back out to the field through the R&D fund. And lastly, through Alliant Grants to support movement infrastructure needs. Solidaire also has an indigenous working group with 30 to 40 of its members. They invite indigenous movement leaders as well as re-granting organizations like Thousand Currents, Seventh Generation Fund, Clean Left Fund, and Grassroots International that are doing domestic and international work funding indigenous movements, and as a result are even closer to the work and have cultivated deeper relationships. But tensions must still arise, right? Even in social justice philanthropy, how do you prevent funders from wielding their money and power and co-opting movements? Well, that word came up again, trust. Our funding is based on trust. Uh, Alicia Garza, who is one of the co-founders of the Movement for Black Lives, um, at one of the early Solidaire gatherings, um, she said what really she hoped donors would do is fund at the speed of trust. And it was one of those comments that really resonated deeply within our community and has been a touchstone that we come back to. And the trust is on multiple levels. It's around trust between the members who are themselves activists and organizers or longtime movement funders who've built up those relationships over decades. It's trust between members to each other. We also really try to attend to it by almost all of our grant making is unrestricted. And mostly, Solidaire is a responsive funder. So it's actually the requests and the asks coming from movements to Solidaire saying, this is what we're doing and this is what support we need. And then us rallying our community to be able to support those needs. In other words, the community leads, the funder follows. Part 5. Giving with one hand, polluting with the other. Earning the trust of organizers also requires transparency and accountability around where donors get their money and how they spend it. Through our conversations and research, it also became clear that several foundations and corporations were granting marginal dollars to Native-led organizations, while also deeply investing in the very industries and sectors that are destroying Native lands and threatening the human rights of Indigenous people. I'll just share a quick anecdote, actually. So Oscar and I were in D.C. in the March of 2017, and saw the Native Nations Rise March and actions that were happening in the National Mall against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Then we went into the Museum of the American Indian and saw that banks like Bank of America, who were funding DAPL, were also funding, ironically, an exhibit on treaties. 
And Wells Fargo had a big PR campaign after all the negative press they got for financing the pipeline to give $50 million to indigenous communities. They were all engaging in this sort of reputation laundering, posing as allies and friends on one side and profiting off the destruction of native lands on the other. And it's not just banks. Philanthropy is implicated too. Foundations are required by law to distribute 5% of their assets via grants each year, while the rest remains in an endowment. While a rare few spend down their endowments, many do not and continue to invest and grow their capital. So how is that remaining 95% invested? Edgar shared his insights. But you know where it really comes down to like, are we really about liberation or not for me? Is that I, I know for a fact that some of those foundations who sent checks to Stunning Rock were also invested in um, private industry, including the oil company that was building the pipeline, right? And so we can be so hypocritical, even progressive funders in this space where we, we want to feel relevant. We want to feel like, oh, we're part of this. We want to rub shoulders with organizers. We want to bring them to our conferences and put them on our panels and, and just feel like, uh, that proximity to movement, which helps us feel like, you know, we are like down, right? Like we're a part of this. And, um, but yet if we are unwilling to put, uh, all of our cards on the table and go all in, all in with all of our money, with all of our credibility, with all of our cash and cachet to, to you know, if we don't put a, we're not willing to put that all on the side of liberation, then we're, we're really only halfway showing up. Philanthropy needs to critically evaluate if its solidarity with Indigenous people is superficial. Indigenous movements and organizers cannot be props for radical credibility. As allies, we all need to take a hard look at how we have contributed to and been complicit in the structures and systems that oppress Native people, and then take tangible steps to unlink ourselves from that harm. The first step for foundations is making their investment portfolio public and accessible, as Edgar describes. I am in favor of some type of public um, legislation that comes from the government to hold foundations um, accountable and to be more transparent, um, especially around where their resources are invested. Only two out of the 10 largest foundations in the U.S. Um, put their financial information around investments online. It's a mystery. And even when you work at a foundation, um, you know, in the past, in some places where I've worked, I wasn't privy to the investments. You were given a grants budget and you're like, go do a good job. And like, what's happening with that 95% of the money over there is being managed by people who I had never even met or seen and were not under the same roof as me. And so this is where, you know, I think that there's a moment of education and opportunity for organizers and for people in philanthropy. Because even people in philanthropy, I'm like, wake up. Like, there's a lot happening under the roof, right? And uh, we need to begin to ask those questions. Like, where are, where is your money invested? Can we see your financial statements and push for public accountability? I think that uh, foundations, like, we, we know that 95% in general, 95% of their funding is invested in um in, in business, in Wall Street, in industry. And it just really boggles my mind that these are organizations and corporations that get complete tax status and only have to uh, show public benefit with 5% of their funds. Divesting from extractive industries that finance the devastation of indigenous lands and people is a critical next step. 
In fact, as Tara Hauska shared with us, the campaign to divest from the companies financing the Dakota Access Pipeline emerged from a desire to bring people who could not come to the front lines into the fight. This is a way you can help. These are the banks that are funding the project. Go show up, shut down the branch, do whatever you can. And so then that really took off. And, you know, in Seattle, we're talking, they were shutting down 60 banks in a day. You know, like just this incredible mobilizing that was happening and then people doing it all over the country. So New York and LA picking up divest and they would do these little actions of maybe 10 people that pulled a hundred thousand dollars, $200,000 with their mortgages and their credit cards and all that stuff. So it really kind of, I feel like it, it came out of that very real and visceral experience of being blocked in, but also like, you know, figuring out well, what's another aspect of this. Because divestment work has been happening for decades, right? It's, and yeah, I mean, just over the span of a couple of years, we were part of billions of dollars being divested from the Dakota Access Pipeline project. If individuals can take money out of banks and the financial institutions that are underwriting the climate crisis and the destruction of native lands and hold them accountable, what would it look like if philanthropy engaged in divestment? How powerful of a signal would that be? While there are ongoing campaigns such as Divest Invest and Stop Money Pipeline, which aim to engage foundations, investors, and nonprofits in campaigns to divest from fossil fuels and hold Wall Street accountable, so far only a few hundred foundations have divested, while thousands have not. Part 6 Funding the Self Determination and Sovereignty of Indigenous People. The philanthropic community has a bad habit picking the issue it wants to focus on, and determining the mechanism for social change before listening to the communities it aims to fund. Funders who want to be allies can ultimately hinder Indigenous people's right to self-determination and sovereignty. When foundations operate in this way, Indigenous survival can come secondary to foundations and campaigns achieving their own goals, as Jason pointed out. Some environmental funders, I, I think, support or have in the past supported indigenous organizing as a tool to achieve environmental ends versus supporting indigenous communities to have the self-determination to ensure their own communities continue, which includes protecting the earth as part of their overall tradition and their overall approach to how they want to see their communities live. And so that, that's been a tension in philanthropy, particularly around Standing Rock and Sense, is around are you supporting native organizing or are you supporting environmental protection by using native organizing as a tool? And that's something that I think the funding community continues to grapple with. As Professor Megan Francis outlines, movement capture happens when well-intentioned foundations use their financial resources to engage organizers in relationships, but then center their own narrative and vision for change. Again and again, our interviewees highlighted how this has been a particular issue with environmental funders in the climate movement. Edgar elaborated on how philanthropy needs to change if it wants to gain the trust of indigenous organizers. I think philanthropy is not about self-determination and is really about, um, in many ways, their own self-preservation. And and it's it's really been difficult for philanthropy to be in a right um relationship with indigenous communities because of this idea of self-determination. Um, so few funders give funding um, to communities with no strings attached without 
um, driving uh, some type of theory of change or set of assumptions or pre prescribed uh, ways of doing the work uh, to communities. If we really are are sincere about wanting to um, invest in the liberation of indigenous peoples, we have to do so. Um, um, we have to put our own um, assumptions and beliefs and theories of changes and all of that to the side and freely liberate the capital, you know, for folks to self-determine how to use that money in the movement work. Foundations also need to critically assess if they are moving money to the front lines, to the people who are fighting pipelines and the people who are sustaining communities. That means taking the time to identify the folks who are keeping language, culture, art, and food traditions alive to support the survival of Indigenous people, as well as the struggles of activists like Tara, who are fighting against Line 3 every day. There's sovereignty that's defined by the U.S. government, and then there's sovereignty that's inherent, right? And those are two very different things in, in my assessment as a lawyer and my assessment also as just a person that is an Indigenous person. You know, the inherent sovereignty to me lies in the people themselves, like the, the tribe of people, which is made up of language, culture, and, and family, right? Like in kin. Those are the things that make a tribe and that make a nation in, in my understanding of what a nation is. That type of sovereignty, you know, which is the, the survival of the people in my assessment, that type of sovereignty is supported through people um, who are able that can recognize and uplift and support the real work that needs to happen. So when I say that, I mean it is too often my experience that when I go into communities, the people who are running Sundance Lodge, the people who are running um, the language teachings, the language tables who are doing, you know, they're chopping firewood for elders, they're feeding people at community gatherings and feasts and drums and all those things. Those people are oftentimes like the most unsupported and underfunded people um, in the community. Part seven, reckoning with capitalism and money in movement organizing. Foundation coffers are filled with money that is directly or indirectly linked to the extraction of labor, land, and resources from oppressed communities. We ask funders how they reckon with these tensions, but how do organizers navigate a world that requires capital to sustain themselves and their work while also maintaining agency and integrity? Those are questions I think that everyone has to has to choose and and you know and balance right because you're also in a situation where especially in black and brown and underrepresented communities you know it's people that have very little right and that have very little access to those spaces to that capital to those resources and we're all still stuck in this entrenched capitalism driven world you know where we are either paying rent or you know have to pay for internet pay for a phone you know we're talking to each other on zoom right now like equipment costs money right like computers costs money it's actually quite expensive to engage in westernized society as a whole i think that movement tends to reflect the capitalistic society that we say that we're opposed to i think that we see that in um the figureheads that sit at the top of movements, I, th I think we see that in the capital that flows through them, um, that it's still this, it's almost a mirror, right? Because you're still working with, with something called capital. What Tara highlights in such a raw and beautiful way is that grappling with these questions is uncomfortable. But it's from this discomfort that we can deeply investigate the root causes of injustice and be driven to effectuate change. I think that it's, it's a good thing to be uncomfortable. And that as a movement and as a person and as a 
human being living in an environment, we are not going to achieve the change that we say we want to achieve comfortably. I don't think that we're going to solar panel our way out of climate crisis. I don't think that we're going to write enough grant applications to get out of climate crisis, right? Like there has to be some real fundamental shifts that are made and those, those, those shifts rely also on values and can rely on those values of really looking at yourself as a person and saying like, you know, how do I maybe disconnect some of these things and start throwing off some of this that, that entrenches me so deeply into this way of living because this way of living is killing us. What's clear is that the rehashing and reinvesting in the funding strategies of yesterday that have consistently failed Indigenous peoples won't bring about change. Donors and foundations need to put their dollars behind the radical and revolutionary work of activists, work like land defense that actively resists the seizure of Native land by corporations and the state. I mean, I'm consistently always pushing personally for um, there to be support and acknowledgement of land defense specifically. In the climate movement, I feel like 90% of the climate movement's resources go to electoral politics and to mass mobilizations. And if they honestly, like, I mean, I just don't understand how, like, people can still, after this many decades of doing those same exact advocacy streams, can think that the system that's directly responsible for causing these situations is going to be the solution to them, right? Like that the federal government with its deep level of corruption and its incredibly deep ties to industry and to campaign finance and to like all these different aspects that we're somehow going to solve climate change through that mechanism. You know what I mean? Through that structure, like, yes, there needs to be AOCs in Congress. Yes, there needs to be Rashida Tlaib. Yes, there needs to be Ilhan Omar. There needs to be all these different people and Merkley's and Markey and all these different people that are that are advocating for those pieces and Deb Holland and Sharice David. Yes, there's that. But then also like as a movement, should we not be more thoughtful of the fact that, okay, so we're concerned about the environment. Native people hold 80% of the world's biodiversity. 80% is held in indigenous lands. How can you not think that support of land defense and of indigenous sovereignty is not one of the most critical, if not the most critical piece of trying to at least save what we have? You know what I mean? That instead we direct all of this energy towards the spaces that are so comfortable and we march on Congress over and over and over again. And we, you know, are out there knocking on doors for elections and all of that. And that's all we do. You know what I mean? Like that is just not, that's not even, to me, that's such a, um, a disconnect with what's even effective, you know, like, and what's needed. Like you don't achieve change by doing the same thing over and over and over again and not seeing the results that need to happen because we are in crisis. I think indigenous sovereignty plays a huge role in that. And so does the uplifting of impacted communities and people of color and those folks that can tell you directly, like, this is what's happening. You know what I mean? This is what climate crisis looks like. Like, I mean, we partner with, you know, when I first started on Sandpiper, like, you go to the most polluted zip code in Detroit. They're the refinery that's part of, they refine some of the oil that goes through our pipelines that they want to put in through our territory. You know what I mean? It's all connected and it's always the same people being impacted over and over and over again. I don't think that looking to the society who's largely doing these things is going to be the best society to get a full perspective on what's needed, you know, and, and what's, what happens when that, when you're breathing in refinery air, 
that's full of tar sands every single day and you're part of cancer, cancer cluster, you know, or you're dealing with an oil pipeline that's destroying the wetlands, you know, in Minnesota, like line three wants to go through the wetlands and wants to bulldoze through the wetlands and that's irrevocable harm, you know, and the people of this territory, we can tell you about the land and what's needed and the ecosystems and how fragile they are and the immense amount of diversity and medicine and power that's in those places. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's necessarily just specific to indigenous people, but I think indigenous people certainly play a huge role when it comes to addressing climate crisis. As we wrap up this episode, I can't help but think back to the day we interviewed Tara. It was May Day. The timing of the interview was both coincidental and symbolic. While we each called in from our homes, thousands of frontline and essential workers across the country planned mass strikes in resistance to unsafe working conditions and unfair pay. In the midst of a global pandemic, folks demanded rent relief, debt relief, and a people's bailout. Despite physical distancing requirements, people came together to collectively act against the long-standing conditions of exploitation that have rendered black and brown folks, the houseless, the poor, and the incarcerated especially vulnerable to this crisis. Tara, sitting before her warrior flag, called out the death ticker on the news. A death ticker that for some has been a wake-up call to social injustices. Yet for many indigenous communities and communities of color, this is nothing new. The shameful failure of our government to ensure the basic human rights of indigenous people has been laid bare. Native people face a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 cases, building on centuries of federal divestment in healthcare, basic social services, and infrastructure for our nation's original people. The genocide continues. In the midst of the crisis, oil extraction and repression of protests has not stopped. Indigenous people are fighting ongoing battles against pipelines. Line 3 in Minnesota threatens the health, farming, water rights, treaty rights, and ultimately the survival of the Anishinaabe people. Meanwhile, 11 states have passed industry-funded riot-boosting legislation that criminalizes protesting projects that states deem critical infrastructure, including pipelines that cut through native lands. The genocide continues. Once again, we are facing a watershed moment. All of us, especially funders, are faced with the decision to either align ourselves with movements for justice and liberation or continue to uplift the status quo. After talking with Edgar Villanueva, Jason Franklin, and Tara Hauska, we have learned a number of things foundations should do. One, eliminate the burden of being educated. Recognize that your ignorance is indicative of the problem. So educate yourselves on the history of indigenous peoples and their struggles. And hire more program managers that have deep experience in and connections to indigenous movements. Two, create a culture of trust and transparency. Funders should be accountable to the organizers, not the other way around. Decenter yourselves and trust that your grantees know what they need and know how to get it done. Three, don't give with one hand and pollute with the other. Go all in. Align your grant giving and your investments with social justice movements. Four, fund self-determination and sovereignty. Don't fund indigenous organizing as a means to achieve an environmental end. Fund indigenous organizing and community work as its own end. Support the survival of native peoples and their cultures. 
And five, reckon with capitalism and colonialism and truly reckon with it. Critically reflect on and interrogate the source of your foundation's wealth. How is its existence and perpetuation tied to the existence and perpetuation of indigenous oppression? As Jason said, social justice philanthropy at its best is also grappling with its very own construct. So success for big philanthropy should mean that it becomes extinct. With all that, the three of us are still left wondering, will the revolution be funded? Well, we hope so. But if not, the work continues. It must. Our music is titled Waves by Pictures of a Floating World from the Free Music Archive. Thank you to Tara, Edgar, and Jason for taking time away from their busy schedules to speak to us. Thank you to Professor Megan Francis for asking tough questions of philanthropy and challenging us to do the same. To find out how you can support the ongoing campaign to stop N. Bridges' Line 3 Tar Sands project, follow the GNU Collective on Facebook and go to www.stoplinethree.org. To learn more about Indigenous movements for climate justice and the organizations mentioned in the podcast, check out our show notes. Thank you for listening.